Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Oh, hello and welcome to the program. You are listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. And if you aren't tired of me yet, good. If you are tired of me, well, keep listening. Maybe I'll grow on you. It's going to be a special show tonight because joining me in studio is Rosie. Yay. You doing well? Yes. Now, I'm a millennial. What generation did they give you? What name do they give your generation? I'm sure I'm a boomer. Baby boomer. So, let's call this show a boomer and a millennial waste some time. Yes. But I came across, before I get into this video I came across, by a guy named Jordan Peterson. He's a professor up in Canada, and he's been part of all sorts of controversies having to do with political correctness and some of the new standards and speech codes they're imposing in Canada, and he's been outspoken about it, and somehow he's been labeled alt-right because of that. But when I listen to the man, he doesn't strike me in that way. But before we get to this video that was shared on the Book of Faces, we were both raised uh, Roman Catholic, grew up Roman, both went to Catholic school. Right. Now, you had the nuns actually teaching you. Right. Went to a Catholic all-girls school for my first two years. Wow. So, freshman and sophomore. So segregated based on the sexes. Yes. Now, yes. did you go to college at an all-girls school? No. No. Okay. Now, I went to Catholic here locally, Montgomery Catholic, and there were a few nuns around, but never as regular faculty members. And we had straight-up teachers, though some of my uh Female teachers probably could have been nuns, and how sweet they were. And we were talking off air before that some of the nuns lived up to this idea of being very stringent, right? You know, hitting your knuckles with the rulers and whatnot. But others were very loving, oh, precious, just precious. Yes, and you know, they though the nun thing went away by the time I come around to Montgomery Catholic. I did learn a few things, usually sitting in the pew. And I think us both being raised Catholic, we remember the parable of the talents. Yes. And, you know, more who's, when you're given more, you're, you're expected, expected more. Right. And it really makes me think about what wasting time is. Because in this world, with all the prosperity around us, there's plenty to complain about, but there's also plenty to enjoy. Right. So, so is it wasting time when we work too hard? Is it wasting time when we don't work enough? Are we wasting time when we're sitting and watching a movie? Are we wasting time when we're in a relationship with the wrong person? Uh, Yeah. Oh, I would (laughs) say definitely to that. Uh, Definitely yes to that. But Jordan Peterson brings up this idea of wasting time, and then somebody responded to this video with an article on the psychological benefits of wasting time. 
I actually don't think there's much of a contradiction here, but let's give the floor to Mr. Peterson here, and it's a very well-put-together video. How many hours a day you waste, or how many hours a week you waste? And the classic answer is something like four to six hours a day. And so if your life isn't everything it could be, you could ask yourself, well, what would happen if you just stopped wasting the opportunities that are in front of you? You'd be, who knows how much more efficient? 10 times more efficient, 20 times more efficient, that's the Pareto distribution. You have no idea how efficient, efficient people get. It's completely, it's off the charts. Well, and if we all got our act together collectively and stopped making things worse, because that's another thing people do all the time, not only do they not do what they should to make things better, they actively attempt to make things worse because they're spiteful or resentful or arrogant or deceitful or or homicidal or genocidal or all of those things all bundled together in an absolutely pathological package if people stopped really really trying just to make things worse we have no idea how much better they would get just because of that so there's this weird dynamic that's part of the existential system of ideas between human vulnerability social judgment both of which are 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 major causes of suffering and the failure of individuals to adopt the responsibility that they know they should adopt. You know, if you take people, and I've told you this, and you expose them voluntarily to things that they are avoiding and are afraid of, you know, that they know they need to overcome in order to meet their goals, their self-defined goals. If you can teach people to stand up in the face of the things they're afraid of, they get stronger. And you don't know what the upper limits to that are, because you might ask yourself, like, if for 10 years, if you didn't avoid doing what you knew you needed to do, by the def by your own definitions, right, within the value structure that you've created to the degree that you've done that, what would you be like? Well, you know, there are remarkable people who come into the world from time to time, and there are people who do find out over decades long periods what they could be like if they were who they were if they spoke their being forward and they get stronger and stronger and stronger and you don't know the limits to that you do not know the limits to that and so you could say well in part perhaps the reason that you're suffering unbearably can be left at your feet because you're not everything you could be and you know it and of course that's a terrible thing to admit and it's a terrible thing to consider but there's real promise in it right because it means that perhaps there's another way that you could look at the world there's a number another way that you could act in the world so what it would reflect back to you would be much better than what it reflects back to you now so you might say well what would happen if you abided by your conscience for five years or for ten years what sort of position might you be in what sort of family might you have what sort of relationship might you be able to afford and you could be bloody sure that a relationship that's forged on the basis of who you actually are is going to be a lot stronger and more welcome than one that's forged on the basis of who you aren't. And it's a great basis on which to bring children into the world, for example, because you can have an actual relationship with them instead of torturing them half to death, which is what happens in a tremendously large minority of cases. Because it isn't merely that your fate depends on whether or not you get your act together and to what degree you decide that you're going to live out your own genuine being. It isn't only your fate, it's the fate of everyone that you network with. And so, you know, you think, well, there's 
7 billion people in the world, and who are you? You're just one little dust mote among that 7 billion. And so it really doesn't matter what you do or don't do, but that's simply not the case. It's the wrong model, because you're at the center of a network. You're a node in a network. Of course, that's even more true now that we have social media. You'll, you, you'll know a thousand people, at least over the course of your life. And they'll know a thousand people each, and that puts you one person away from a million two persons away from a billion and so that's how you're connected and the things you do they're like dropping a stone in a pond the ripples move outward and they affect things in ways that you can't fully comprehend and it means that the things that you do and that you don't do are far more important than you think wow the video says at the end live your potential and I find that incredibly powerful. How yes. anybody could find that man uh, dangerous or because he isn't completely politically correct uh, astounds me. I've actually listened to him talk for hours upon hours on other podcasts, online. That's what's happened to him. He's been pushed out of academia and essentially has to uh, do things on the Internet. But what he's discovered is he's connecting with millions of people now just through YouTube. He's speaking truth. And it, it is a remarkable truth that's found in, in so many ways. I was, you know, of course, thinking of the parable of the talents, but then you can think of It's a Wonderful Life, where, you know, Clarence shows George Bailey, well, if you hadn't have been here, look at how this world would have been different. Exactly. We all matter. We all absolutely matter. But somebody took issue with that first sentence that Jordan Peterson used. How many hours a day do you waste? And so somebody posted a little follow-up article that is titled, The Psychological Importance of Wasting Time. But I don't know if it necessarily contradicts what Peterson says. I want to share some of this. The article says, There will always be an endless list of chores to complete and work to do. And a culture of relentless productivity tells us to get to it right away and feel terribly guilty about any time wasted. But the truth is, a life spent dutifully responding to emails is a dull one indeed. And quote-unquote wasted time is in fact highly fulfilling and necessary. Don't believe me? Take it from the creator of Inbox Zero. As Oliver Berkman reports in The Guardian, Merlin Mann was commissioned to write a book about his streamlined email system. Two years later, he abandoned the project and instead posted a since now deleted blog post on how he'd spent so long focusing on how to spend time well, he ended up missing valuable moments with his daughter. Well, that's ironic. The problem comes when we spend so long frantically chasing productivity, we refuse to take real breaks. We put off sleeping in, or going for a long walk, or reading by the window. And even if we do manage time away from the grind, it comes with a looming awareness of the things we should be doing. And so the experience is weighed down by guilt. Instead, there's a tendency to turn to the least fulfilling tendency of them all, sitting at our desk in front of our computer, browsing websites and contributing to neither our happiness nor productivity. There's an idea we must always be available, work all the time, says Michael Gutridge, a psychologist who focuses on workplace behavior. It's hard to break out of that and go to the park, but the downsides are obvious. We end up zoning out while at the computer looking for distraction on social media, telling ourselves we're multitasking while really spending far longer than necessary on the most basic tasks. Plus, Gutridge 
says Guttridge. We're missing out on the mental and physical benefits of time spent focused on ourselves. People eat at the desk and get food on the computer. It's disgusting. They should go for a walk to the coffee shop. Just get away, he says. Even Victorian factories had some kind of rust breaks. It's not as though we need to work so hard. And this article goes on and on, saying that some CEOs will watch movies on Fast Forward so they can get the gist of the movie quickly. And yet other people who maybe sit and binge watch a show, it can be beneficial to binge watch a show. But if you're sitting there binge watching, say, a show on Netflix, and you are saying to yourself, man, I'm such a couch potato, it's not going to be beneficial. So... This person posted this article on the benefits of wasting time as in opposition to what we heard from Mr. Peterson. And I actually took from these two things the same message. Be yourself. Actually understand when you need to work. Waste isn't being non-productive necessarily. Right. It's about finding what you love and using your talents wisely, prudently. Yeah, and I think some people look at things and say you're wasting time if you're not active and and doing something that's goal-oriented every minute of the day. Well, and I think of uh, there's a talk out there online of a woman who would do performance art really by being a, a statue, a living statue, and wouldn't move unless somebody put a donation in a jar. She would do this on the street corner. Fabulous remarkable dress and body paint. I mean, she would look like a statue. And if somebody would come up and do some nice gesture to her, like, you know, blow a kiss or say, I love you, or give her a small donation, she would have them move and she would have them kiss a little flower she was holding. Mm -hmm. And then she would go back to her pose. But she said she would have multiple people come up to her and say, you know, get a job, hippie. Or go, you know, go work. And it does, so there is this idea of you constantly have to be toiling. And I think that's the wrong idea. It is, in some ways, what people credit in establishing this country and capitalism in the modern world, the Protestant work ethic. Uh, Max Weber talks about this, and that, and maybe it had to do with theories of predestination, but if, if you worked hard, you worked hard, you worked hard, it didn't matter if you found success in that work or if you enjoyed that work, that was your destiny. Right. I think it's absolutely the other way around. Work intelligently. Right. And it's not about... And being who you know, like this shirt I'm wearing, it's a Prince Purple Rain shirt, mm-hmm. obviously, because anybody who knows me knows I can't stop talking about that weird little dude. May he rest in peace. He, when he hit this time period, like 1983, 84, told the story the other day, would work for three days straight, producing song after song after song. He was getting songs done in a day, fully cut and mastered, produced in a day where it would take other bands and artists a week to do just one song. And these engineers in the studio with him couldn't keep up. They were, let's get another one in here. I can't keep up with him. And so he said, well, if y'all can't keep up, let me learn how you produce, how you actually run the engineering board. Let me learn how you edit video. Like, he just took everything upon himself. Makes me think I was listening to a wrestling podcast. John Cena, he's been the top guy in professional wrestling for 15 years. And folks who have worked with him said that he's not just a pretty face, he's not just a good talker. 
he actually takes every day, takes the time to go, hmm, how's my merchandise doing? What's the crowd size compared to last time we were in this town? Oh, did I remember to send a note to that kid I met in this town last year? He takes time to really understand his craft because he, he loves what he's doing. He's focused. He's focused. So I'd never look at, say, someone like Prince or somebody like John Cena, and we could take all sorts of examples of some folks we might say are workaholics. They're working themselves to the bone, burning the candle at both ends. But I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say you need to slow down. You need to learn the psychological benefits of wasting time, guys. No, they're in the zone. Right. Go for it. But I have had moments where, on these airwaves, honestly, I felt like I'm spinning my wheels. Maybe I'm working just to work, working just to get the paycheck. Sometimes you have to do that. But when you take a moment, and this is really the perspective I've come to, and I wonder what you think of this, Rosie. It's not about how can I change the world and be the most productive person ever. For me, it's more how do I understand the world and through understanding, improve myself. But improvement isn't always just faster or stronger. It is how do I find tranquility in the mind as well as balancing that out with friendship and enjoying loving life. So I see all these folks, listen to all these folks, trying to change the world, whether through politics or entrepreneurship and business, charity work, some of it's good, but some of it only seems to lead to resentment and that fight. So do you think I'm wrong to say I don't want to change the world? That seems like such a, a basic premise of our society. Change the world. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I, I, I think maybe that's the wrong question. Hmm. I, I mean, some people are saying I want to change the world, but I think... If you find your purpose, because I, I firmly believe that everyone is created with a purpose. And I feel if you find your purpose, you will change the world, even if, if it's the world around you. I think if we were all operating in our purpose and doing the thing that we were called to do, mm. the world would be a better place. I think there's too many people doing things that they were never designed to do, and they're miserable. Mm. And they're not contributing, um, and it, it, you know. Well, and you've uh, done a lot over your life. You now have taken to writing, correct? Mm-hmm. Now, do you find that I've asked people what does freedom mean to you? And I'm like, don't give me a dictionary definition. Don't give me a theoretical definition. What I mean is, like, what activity do you engage in in life that makes you feel free? Oh, I love to write. Writing. Yeah, and I and I think, um, you know, I've been writing for years, but never writing like I'm writing now. And it's because I wanted to be better at it because I felt like I had something to say. Um, and so I got a writing coach who encouraged me to write like I talked because I would tell him all these stories of different things that had happened. Right. And he said, you need to write like you talk. When you tell me these stories, he said, I remember these stories forever. And he said, put it on paper. Don't be afraid to uh, wear your feelings on your sleeves, so to speak. 
hmm. and and be yourself and tell the truth and and I found that that's true and sometimes it's a little unnerving um, because you become very vulnerable very exposed exactly yeah. you know but the thing is um, I think if it I think you have to examine your motives and if you're doing it because you want to help people maybe that have been through the same situation or um, or that think they're the only ones that have ever experienced what they're experiencing you will help someone and so I, I just think it's the the motivation behind what you're doing absolutely now I don't want to put you on the spot but what would be like a story you have written or story you've told that you would say that's my favorite story to tell people well, I don't know about my favorite, but um, and I don't want to tell all of it, but um, I, I did tell the story in the book about um, when I was 17 years old, I got pregnant, mm. and I had a baby out of wedlock, which back in the 60s, you know, right. it was not like it is today. Right. It, it, was, um, it was a big deal. And so I tell the story in the book of what I went through and how I felt and, you know, what the result is. And it's one of those things that when something like that happens to you, that's something that never goes away. Oh, you know, sure. some choices you make are lifetime choices and there are consequences to the choices that we make. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you, you know, you stay in a ditch forever. No, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying we make choices and then the choices make us. And um, I've been able to use that situation to help other people in similar situations. So I'm very transparent in that. You know? Well, and you, would you say you, especially at this point, have come out on the other side of those experiences better for it? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. What would you? What do you say to folks who are maybe in that situation? Maybe, you know, they find themselves uh, a single mom, or they find themselves very young, and this has happened. And well, because I come at it from a position of faith, you know, yeah. the most important thing to me is that you hear from God, because everybody's decision is different, and it depends on the situation you're in. It depends upon your frame of mind at the time. Um, you know, I've had people say to me, I would never give my baby up for adoption, hmm. you know, and um, and that's fine. You know, that can be your opinion, but really, you don't know what you're going to do when you get there. Right. And, um, and I still feel today, I made my decision in God. I prayed about it. I had a long time to pray about it. And I have never regretted the decision that I made. You know, does that mean that I never think about the decision that I made? No, of course not. I do. You know, I, I remember the, every birth date, every year, wonder, and that sort of thing, but not in a heavy, wish I would have done something different uh, type of mindset. No. You know, it's just, you know, you're curious. You wonder. I mean, that's part of you. And so, um, but I've never regretted the decision that I made. And I've been able to talk to other people about it, not to tell them this is what I think is the best decision for you, but this is, this is a decision that you have to make and you, you need to really weigh 
everything because it affects you for a lifetime. Absolutely. And, you know, we could say that regret and sort of hand-wringing over, and maybe it was a decision that you initially go, I wish I hadn't done that. But you have to, you can't live in that regret. and you can't take it back. Right. So you you sort of, you you face it. You face the challenge, and you, you continue on with life. Right. And I love, because to me, the most important things in life are the the stories we tell, especially about ourselves, um, the narratives we weave around our decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people find a lot of solace in their faith, of course, because it gives you a story much bigger than you. I mean, does it not? It says other people have been through this, and that's what you're trying to offer to others. But you can look back 2,000 years ago, and you find people are thinking the same thoughts. They might have made the same decisions, and that you don't have to recreate the wheel all over again. No, and I think you can spend a lot of time, or say waste a lot of time, yes. being that that's what we're talking about, regretting the past, saying, staying stuck in a situation and never moving forward because you can't let go of a situation. I, I do believe that is a waste of time um, when you don't have to do that. Well, you don't have to do that. Well, and I've, I've gotten in those ruts before where I'm, I'm not happy with where I was and I wasn't happy with where I was going. I was very much stuck. And there was a line, again, from a Prince song, is not knowing where I'm going in this galaxy is better than having no place to go. And when you shut off all options going forward because you're so stuck in the past, then you really have no place to go. Mm -hmm. You kind of can start over from square one and, uh, well, you can embrace, I think, and what got me and gets me out of the ruts I get into the funk I get into, well, is sometimes funk, as I'm about to play here. Because the album of the day is the Gamble and Huff Orchestra. The song when the OJs did it and Gamble and Huff produced it for them was Used to Be My Girl. This is Used to Be My Guy by the orchestra. But sometimes it's as simple as sitting in the middle of my living room listening to a song and it's not an escape it's not to forget the decision I've made in life it's to say no this is one possibility like I think it I think music helps to focus you sometimes absolutely and out of the break I kind of want to ask you about what is like one of your favorite pieces of music and we'll try to find it Okay. I mean, it could be anything. Oh, I know what it is. Oh? Well, hold on to that answer. Okay. Folks, you're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I'm going to be sharing that Jordan Peterson video on my Facebook page, the Joey Clark Radio Hour, so be sure to check it out. It was a powerful speech by him. See, not wasting time isn't a simple thing. This is not a waste of time. Oh, this right now? No, I feel in the moment right now. Don't Absolutely. You? Yeah. Well... Thank you again for listening, folks. This is the Joey Clark Radio Hour. We'll be right back after this short break.
Now, welcome back to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Now, this isn't my album of the day, but you, Rosie, suggested this song. Yes. What is this song? Silver Morning by Kenny Rankin. Huh. He's about to start singing. first hear this song? Oh gosh, probably back in the 70, 60s or 70s. I was talking last week about how songs take me immediately back to summer. Oh, absolutely transport you. What's, what's the setting for this? Um, what is the 70s? Like, it doesn't have to be an ultra detail, but it's kind of where are you? And Just that time of yearning and trying to find your place in the world and you know where you're supposed to be and who you're supposed to love and yeah how you're going to spend the rest of your life <laughs> you know i've never heard this song so the first oh time i'm hearing is right here with you rosie um now the conversation continued as the ads were playing and you talked about how and you're going to reveal more details in the book that you're mm-hmm. about to come out with mm-hmm and, well, you'll be back on, I'm sure, shows with Greg. I'd love to have you back here, and I'd love to help people find that book once it comes out. Okay. But you did say that there were folks, when you found yourself in your situation at 17, you made your decisions and you were there, that you were shamed and shunned by a lot of people. Well, it was the 60s. Right. You know, and so that was just, we didn't talk about that, we didn't. You didn't get yourself in that kind of a situation. You know, I had to go away for three months. Um, But it makes me think of a conversation we were having again off air where you had two different types of nuns at Catholic school. mm -hmm. You had ones that said, this was the rule, and it's the rule because it's the rule. And you broke the rule. So you're going to get a slap on the wrist. Right. Then you had others that you just wanted to hug all the time. Right. Because they emphasized love. And I... You know, life does need some rules and needs discipline. Right. That's what I'm working on. I would say that I lack the uh, discipline at times to be my best self, and I'm working on that. But at other times, I think people hide behind the rule, whereas it's a a writer who I've spoken to before named David Gornoski. Mm -hmm. He points out that Jesus doesn't tell... Say the woman were, you know, those among you without sin cast the first stone. She's committed adultery. He doesn't say, okay, you might have been a prostitute. No, lock her up. He doesn't shame her. He says, change your ways and be better. Right. And I'm amazed, though, that, and I'm not picking on Christians. 
it's people in politics with you know the rule of law. It could be people in other faiths. Where folks focus on the rule and the power that the rules give them, rather than, I think, fostering the love the rules are supposed to foster. Right. Did, have you found that maybe that's where those folks were coming from when they would, you know, it, you say it was the 60s, it was a different time. But I'm sure when you talk to young women these days, maybe find themselves in a similar case that, I mean, it hasn't completely caught away. No. So, but there are, it's just a different time. And I'm not saying that where, that this is the good time right. or that back then was the bad time. It was just a different time. You know, I was, I was raised in a different generation. Sure. And so things were not looked upon as liberally as they are looked upon today, you know? Oh, sure. I agree. And, um... Well, I think it's about following your conscience, right. as Mr. Peterson says in that video. And too often people hide behind the rule and forget to follow that part of their conscience that forgives and tries to understand people. Well, there's a place for love and mercy, you yes. know. And sometimes love is tough. Love was tough in that situation. It was very tough. But the greater love was to do the right thing in that situation, you know, and, um, well, you're actually making me think of something. Um, let the more loving one be me. It's a poem. Uh, it's by W H Auden. And I wish I could just remember it off the top of my head, but folks, I'm looking it up right now. Uh, because when Auden came to a realization, um, for him, it was a crisis of faith that he found, as some atheists might say, one who was made not able to believe. And I guess he was in England, so the church Anglican. But he wasn't like some of the new atheists we've seen in recent years who go out and they fight. And somebody called into these airwaves earlier and talked about Christopher Hitchens. He wasn't like that. He was, in fact, when he found himself in a crisis of faith... Uh, very distressed, like, what's wrong with me? And feeling all the, the the forlornness that comes with that, the loneliness that comes with that. Like, God gives meaning, as you just said, and God helps give purpose. And if he's being true to himself, and he's like, I don't know what to do. And he writes this poem, The More Loving One Be Me. And I think, folks, this message here can apply to more than just, in the case of Auden, a crisis of faith. Like, you can read old diaries of Mother Teresa, by the way, and she often had a crisis of faith. And there's actually doctrine in the Catholic Church that if a member of the clergy, I believe this is doctrine, is having doubts that they, they profess anyway. You profess in order to live up and believe. And so here's what the poem says. Looking up at the stars, I know quite well that for all they care, I can go to hell. But on earth, indifference is the least we have to dread from man or beast. How should we like it were stars to burn with a passion for us we could not return? If equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me. Admirer as I think I am of stars that do not give a damn, I, cannot, I cannot now I see them say... I missed one terribly all day. 
We're all stars to disappear or die. I should learn to look at an empty sky and feel its total dark sublime, though this might take me a little time. That when life changes and something foundational is goes away, you want to be able to say immediately, oh, tough it up, you know, some might say to me, man up, Joey. You know, be a, be a big boy, grow up. And that's what I love about Auden's poem is that he acts like, oh, I don't give a damn about the stars. But actually, if there was a starless world, it would take me some time to find it beautiful. But I think I could do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes with almost anything foundational. That if you hit a moment of uh, of crisis or you lose social standing or you lose a parent like in my case uh, it it shakes you to your core mm-hmm. and you go man how can i i said in my eulogy about my mom how how can i know if she was the artist that created me how could a piece of art ever know all the secrets of its creator how and i guess i'll try to figure that out over the years but I started to think it's funny that Autumn brings up stars because I wrote something a long time ago saying that I looked at the stars above. They're nothing to me, but I guess that's something. Uh, no man is wiser than me because we're all fools who want an answer, who want a reason for why we're here to soon be gone and we'll move on like a song caught in the wind. And I really worried about, and this is long before my mom became sick, This is where it's weird for me looking back. Long before she became sick, that I was thinking about, you know, why do we die? And then I wrote this line that said, but when I saw your eyes, and I mean love, I forgot time. I forgot that we die. Uh, And by that, I could mean it could be romantic love. It could be friendship be love between a a parent and a child, a love between God and human beings. Uh, But I found myself saying, well, that's the ticket. And when I really struggled with my mom's death, I realized that what gave me solace is that all those incredible moments when I looked in her eyes will always have happened. That it's not like, oh, the eternity part begins after we're gone. That it's already happening. Mm -hmm. And that it's already there. Now, that means there's a heavy responsibility. Um, The bad things you do, you will always have done. And you can do your best to create a story to be good. Um, Would you say that when something fundamental changes in your life, you have to sort of learn, well, as Auden says, if all the stars are to disappear, I guess I'm going to have to learn to love a starless sky. That no matter what comes your way, you can sort of brave that unknown so-called darkness and say, well, I can still find hope and meaning in this. Well, I think it depends on where your focus is. Mm -hmm. And... um, if you're focusing on the event, it can be a very dark time. Hmm. But I think if your focus, for me, you know, my focus was on God. And so that brought me hope because I knew he knew yesterday, today, 
and tomorrow. And if I put my life in his hands, he's already there and he already knows what he's going to do. So why do I need to worry about it? Right. I know I don't know what's up ahead and that's scary. It's very scary at times. But yet I know that the one who's up ahead knows. And so I can put my confidence in him. And therefore, it's, it's not as scary or as dark as it was. And that may sound simplistic, but that's basically what I've done most of my life. So I don't find it simplistic at all. Um, and sometimes I, I think, especially philosophers, and I've done it myself, uh, we tend to get overwrought. <laughs> you know, want to complicate and gild the lily a bit to make it sound beautiful or whatever, when really most basic truths in life are, are fairly simple. Um, I don't know. I think you're right about you don't want to relive that moment over and over again that maybe changed you fundamentally. You have to move on from it. And, and learn from it. Yes. So you don't repeat the process all right so you don't want to just sit there and forget and forget and exactly forget, and then all of a sudden whatever you were suppressing comes up and bites you again. pain is a good teacher sometimes hmm yes well we were made for joy and woe right so I, but i think you know what you said too and what this poem talks about let the more loving one be me i i don't think that love i think if we err on the side of love, I don't think that's ever a waste of time because right. I think love never fails. And though you may think that's simplistic too, but I really believe love breaks down barriers. And love means, love is not an ooey gooey, mushy feeling, you know, or necessarily an emotion. Sometimes love is tough sometimes love is hard sometimes love is doing the right thing for the right reasons you know and so it takes on many different forms but um i don't think that if we love it's ever a waste of time or it's ever it's ever a mistake right even even if it's not going to be reciprocated well in our modern language sort of i think uh conceals the issue of you know, essentially, you can think of love in three different ways. One is sort of sexual, romantic love. Right. One is friendship right. and fraternity, and other is agape, as the Greeks might have said, but divine love. But I think here on Earth, what that means is uh, sort of seeing and hoping for the best in the other person that right. you're giving that love to. And I know from um, I saw it with my own eyes the. What you say when you say love sometimes is going through the storm, mm -hmm. going and helping somebody through a tragedy, even when you know it's not going to end well, that it's still worth being there. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't feel good, but it's not about our feelings and our emotions. It's about, you know, love is a substance to me. Hmm. It's very tangible at times. Well, and I almost feel like it's too transactional at times, uh, you know, because somebody did me wrong, I got to react to them in a negative way, you know, in a proportional way. And it actually makes me think of something. Um, this is fairly modern, but there was a guy named Neil Strauss. He wrote this, I believe, a book called The Game, where he became an official pickup artist. 
And he was this geeky guy who, by all means, in professional life, was very successful. He'd written, ghostwritten a lot of books. He was brilliant in many respects. But he'd never had a date. He, and he couldn't talk to women. So he felt that was something wrong with him. He searches out these guys who teach him all these tricks, though. And the tricks work. Now, they're tricks that you could, might teach somebody if they want to network in business, too. They're just psychological tricks. But he went down a road of, oh, I am now powerful. I can use all these tricks to sleep with as many women as I want. And the book near the end gets to where he's talking and he's not feeling very good about himself. Oh, he's probably a very empty individual. Right. And he meets Hugh Hefner, who just died this week at 91. I don't know, I can't remember exactly what Hefner said or what Neil Strauss quotes him as saying. It's been a while since I read Strauss's book. But Hefner essentially says that, Strauss asks him, when does this end? This desire that they've been pursuing, when does it end? He said it doesn't. And when Hefner told him that, Strauss said he wasn't saying it in a happy way. Now, I think Hefner knew that he had done some good things. I think he broke down some barriers that needed to be broken down. But I think Hefner also knew that I have pursued a, a false idol, if you will, a blind alley. Um, and he realized that late in life, but you get so in a, in a lane that you keep doing it. But you can change that, folks. Yeah, you can. This is what we mean by wasting time. You could say that Hugh Hefner made millions and millions of dollars. It might be billions. I don't know how much that Playboy brand is worth. You could say he did give plenty of opportunities to people. You could also point out some of the ways he preyed on people and used his power over people. And he couldn't take any of it with him. He couldn't take any of it with him. You know, there's this meme going around that or Hefner surrounded by all these gorgeous young women, scantily clad, said, Hugh Hefner will be the only person when he dies who doesn't go to a better place. It's a joke. But from what Hefner told that pickup artist, you almost have to think he realized he had made some mistakes. Wasted a lot of time. He had wasted a lot of time. Even though by almost every outward appearance, the guy was having fun, he was successful in life. And then sometimes you can look at the most humble person where, say, this sociologist went to this poor farm in Alabama and said, you're living in this shanty, this hog farm. Where's your wealth? And the mother looked at him a bit offended and said, we put our wealth in our children's education. We put our wealth in those we loved. We put our wealth in things that will leave a legacy. Yes. So don't tell us that we're poor. And I think that's how you don't waste time. That's right. Rosie, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Loved it. Loved it, too. Folks, you're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I'll be back on Monday. For now, enjoy Silver Morning by Kenny Rankin.